Greetings to all. This is Abhivardhan from Internationalism, and welcome to Juris Vox, a special lecture series by Internationalism on global podcast series at Anchor. dot fm. So, along with other podcast series like Globality Eds and uh, you know uh, some special features by Mr. Pratik Gauri, Mr. Narayan Sharma, and Mr. Michael Sunkani, which we have been have had been having for uh, you know. Uh, a few weeks um here's a new launch by us so we have a special one with the lectures of international law and now but this one is purely related to legal theory and jurisprudence so um this is primarily concerned for those law scholars students and academicians and also practitioners who are interested in the field of jurisprudence understanding what jurisprudence is and getting to the best out of it in the very minimalistic sequence um we have created is this content very carefully with consideration over in understanding you know the viewership and also how people may be influenced not at least but yes impacted for their own you know uh, learning purposes because uh, learning is just never so old so um here we go uh, we start with the series itself um so a little introduction about it uh, juris box is something of a new revolution where we have special lectures on jurisprudence you know uh, we are going we may we may talk about the natural law theory we may talk about you know the theory of social contract we may talk about uh, the revolution of hegel we may talk about you know uh, constitutional morality we may talk about dictatorship and international law you know uh, that mm, we may talk about criminality and its legal provisions you know and other considerations that are related to jurisprudence pure jurisprudence pure law you know we are going to talk about that uh, so we start this and uh, 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 i will be accompanied by uh, miss swati singh parmar this time uh, whose podcast session is just after mine and um, she'll be telling about the greek era the greek era and the rise of jurisprudence as a field and also as a concept of law um but yes what am i going to do with you is actually not only an introduction of juris vox but also a very special lecture from my side this is an argumentative lecture based on contentions and also based on self academic contributions um in general terms this is with the title of constitutional ethics a possibility whether or not uh what is constitutional ethics so um in general when we talk about constitution in general very simple terms it is a basic law okay it's a document it's a very special kind of document not like a general statute or a general bylaw or a general act okay it's a very general but yet very special part of a system okay very basic it actually tries to configure and when i say tries it's not a perfection but yes in the positive law theory we always render the uh, the evolution of the rule of law and its own components in whatever way they may arise you know via interpretation via legislation via delegation or via other means even via international law sometimes by customary international law sometimes via other you know you know self circumstances uh the rise of the rise of a constitution is a different thing but the rise of rule of law is a completely different thing constitutions and their democracies if we understand this aspect we can move upon constitutional ethics very well what happens is that uh, when democracy started to exist from the great britain to the united states and then to india and other asiatic and african democracies you know we should not uh, you know <laughs> ignore russia but yes um, you know provided their political issues um, we cannot say it is a pure democracy so there's also always a issue always an issue of perfection in terms of democratic establishments we have a democracy for example which is x state x um so that uh, the, that nation state x uh, has a constitution y and that constitution y governs the people safeguards the fundamental rights and duties and also some principles which govern the people so as they have to adhere with the state and their subsidiaries that is their agencies 
and that example if we get, if we if uh, if students are from india then they may know about article 12 of the constitution which directly talks about the agency the agency factor you know uh, where a state is there and they have their own subordinates you know for example the university grants commission or any other such body concerned uh, this uh, this uh, fed uh, this quasi federal system i guess but yes um, understanding constitutional ethics is a bit of a more practical issue rather than just a philosophical or a, you know an, a more academic issue when we say whether constitutional ethics is a deemed possibility we need to ask ourselves how well uh, this question um, can certainly go from uh, an understanding rather than just you know the mere jurisprudence of cases because uh, the development the development of a constitution when we ask and understand it's based on the principles of morality you know you will find it everywhere you, can, you cannot ignore that uh, if you if you for example i'm telling you how um, uh, these days the american constitution has a greater significance obviously it had before you know but you know under the regime of president trump <laughs> you know different institutions are uh, you know vested under the constitutional law of america or i should say the united states uh, you know a questionable constraint has existed whether the senate is legitimate in some actions in consideration to house of representatives how much uh, how much the president of the united united states must act in terms of what he did the government shut down okay recently it was uh, you know i should say stopped not permanently but yes stopped for a while i guess uh, but uh, a very simple question was being asked and that was about the fact that what democrats are doing right now and how is it going to lead to a constitutional crisis so you must read i suggest for references by jack balkin a book known as constitutional redemption by oxford university press i guess and that's one of the best books ever to understand constitutional morality because um, uh, that same issue that same issue not actually the exact one but arising the same issue based on different circumstances uh, we can see in india so recently what happened then when the triple talaq judgment came the right to privacy judgment in 2017 came you know uh, when uh, judges had to give uh, you know appropriate decisions over these critical issues and also the shabrimala judgment and the aadhar judgment of october 2018 all these four judgments if we just consider not keshav nanda bharti not maneka gandhi for now not other judgments which have been there just these four judgments as of now then we can understand the very genealogy of the indian constitution and also also of the concept of constitution morality okay um so what happens is that uh, you know there are three different concepts before understanding constitutional ethics so whether it is a possibility we cannot just talk about that but we need to understand these three concepts which i'm going to lecture upon the first constitutional redemption so i told about jack balkin this writer was is an american he uh, wrote about the historic approach of the us constitution and criticized the principles and the active considerations of you know uh, how these systems have been working upon you know whether they are a failure or not so in brief i'll tell you what happened for example you say there is right to equality or you can say you know right to freedom of speech and expression you have in the us constitution and in you know most of the democracies even if not most in general i should say it is just like a jus cogens in international law under humi international human rights law you can refer the international covenant on civil and political rights and also the international covenant on economic and social rights uh, but yes udhr is the prima facie document as a declaration by which this this inspiration is you know reached but uh, the understandability of equality liberty fraternity you know uh, you know right to freedom of practicing professing you know religion these concepts are they compromises or they are promises there's a there's a big question coming on because when we say right to equality okay what do we say we say there's something called equality in the eyes of law okay now equality in the eyes of law is a determinant factor in laying down a forward and futuristic aspect of exactly what and how you know the concept of equality 
does exist. Is it a self-deception or is it just about making a manifested constructivism which leads towards equality? You know, uh, equality is just not administrative, legislative, judicial, um, departmental or uh, I should say organ based. It's not only hierarchical, it's not only gender, it's not only sexual, it's also true. What happens is extensions of fundamental rights, you know. Uh, so, how can we understand this? Earlier, there was natural law, okay. Natural law had a sense of, you know, uh, a state of nature, a state of nature where we had an understandability in our natural, yet not codified, not generalized, not configured, not controlled sense of law. In simple terms, it can be termed as a natural bliss. This is a Rousseauian concept and, uh, you know, uh, Locke and uh, Hobbes have been different on it. You know, John Locke's concept has been very fair on this as compared to both of them because Rousseau comes to a very populist way. You know, he's not populist, but he's set up on a popular sovereignty. But uh, Hobbes talk, uh, talked about, uh, you know, a different concept, uh, you know, Leviathan, where uh, he considered uh, the imperfection of... Uh, um, you know, a sovereign in that way that uh, it's just about a fear, you know, a fear of a material fear, I guess. But yes, he in one of his letters also claimed that he was not clear with his own approach. But still, uh, understanding Locke, for example, state of nature is about, you know, a plethora of rights. So if you read the right to privacy judgment, so if you read, you know, specific paragraphs, you will understand the whole set outset of the judgment. So Justice Chanchu, Justice Nariman and other judges have given references to some very important concepts. For example, I tell you, one of them I tell you because that's important for this lecture is Thomson's reductionism because other concepts are based on economics and also other concepts. But yeah, as of now, this concept is a prima facie one. So uh, Thomson's, uh, Thomson's uh, privacy is about that, a very simple premise the right to privacy is a cluster of many rights. That's a big question. That's a big deal. And uh, if we say something is a right to be a cluster of many rights, then you can ascertain that one right is equal to a lot of rights. It's simple mathematics. But how do you signify and maintain rule of law? And also how you safeguard those rights? How is that done? First, when it comes to safeguarding of rights, we do not recognize all rights to be absolute. That's the pure legal structure in civil rights. Okay. Second, even if we have civil right recognitions, the residual part is still left is human rights. Why? Because uh, when a civil society is formed, if you go to the Western structure, you will understand after the canon law, after the canon law, after the churches and all, when you know, a civil system was formed, you know, not those kings and all, not churches, nobody like that. A civil society system was very traditional, you know, uh, it had uh, a, a systematic influx of civil rights to exist. So civil rights arose after natural rights, okay. After that we came to, you know, something called human rights and human rights also, if we understand human rights in general, a human right is a very predominant natural right which exists, but not all human rights can be recognized in that way. But yes, if you go to international law, now the approach has changed. Uh, we, have, we are recognizing as much possible human rights which are tenable and reasonable enough. Right. So we obviously don't take unreasonable and, uh, uh, you know, uh, outdated content regarding human rights understanding. But yes, we understand human rights in a tripartite approach. But the very problem that comes with civil rights is about understanding whether this estimation is itself tenable to be justified and long-lasting because the elonging aspect, the, 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 the uh, I should say, the elasticity of human rights is a question right now. But you may be thinking that it's a lecture on human rights. Well, it's not. It's about understanding constitutional morality. So I'm directly coming to constitutional morality as of now. Uh, in pure understanding, constitutional morality is a questionable concept. 
this is my argument that I keep in this lecture in a predominant sense. Uh, this uh, problem uh, is uh, not that small and it is getting bigger day by day because there are two aspects to understand. First, the question of exclusivity and the second, the question of, um, you know, cultivability. Something should be cultivable, something should develop rather than just restrict things. So, what has happened is that morality when taken as a, a key parameter to develop a constitution, that is fine, that is, uh, you know, legitimate because um, if you read a constituent assembly debates, if you read about, you know, how constitutions are formed, morality is one of the best grounds ever. Uh, America was known for fighting for moral reasons, well, there were very immoral reasons to fight with as well, if we consider Syria, Vietnam and other countries related conflicts, but yes, the US constitution, its principles, for example, uh, we take a term perfect union, a more perfect union, this is the term of the US constitution, it talks about a moral sense of making a more perfect union because we had colonies under British in the American region. You know, we got liberated and then we formed a constitution. This idea of more perfect union thus also considers that we have states like North Carolina, New York and Minnesota and all. But these all unite as federations, sorry, uh, confederations, no federations or confederation I should say in general and form the United States of America as a sovereign state. Okay, we have states, some small states, but these are forming one nation state known as the United States of America. A more perfect union. This idea of a more perfect union is a moral constraint that is kept on people, on sovereigns, the governments. Okay, this is something we can find in the UK constitutional principles. You know where uh, the role of the House of Commons is much better than the House of Lords. And I'll tell you one of the biggest examples of constitutional redemption coming out. It's the Brexit thing which is going on. So, in Brexit, um, a very interesting question was regarding the contempt of parliament. And it's a very interesting question. How these morality principles can work upon in real life? Uh, the Attorney General of the government of the UK, uh, um, you know, stated something about, you know, his own legal opinion on Brexit. After when uh, uh, the European Court of Justice lawyers and the Attorney General regarding, uh, you know, spoke on the same. What was estimated in the end is, is that, uh, you know, he had not given his full advice, full legal advice in the House of Commons. So, Jeremy Corbyn uh, and other Labour Party politicians, including the SNP politi politicians and the Tories, including Jacob Rees-Mogg, Dominic Grieve and other politicians, questioned to the Speaker, John Burko, that why is this that it is incomplete? Is it a contempt of the Parliament, I guess, we guess? So, yes, it was. And in the history of Britain, it was the first contempt of parliament, I guess. And this was, uh, this we can understand by the fact when the war, war cabinet was formed under Winston Churchill, how confederations work, how these concepts work of morality, how a moral responsibility leads us to something, you know. And that is how, that is how contemporary international law is formed, you know, the concept of United Nations. We have a moral fear inside us that there may be a third world war or so and this morality as a concept has, has led us to something. And these principles actually work in India as well. If you go to uh, 1947 and 1950 times, you will understand that, you know, uh, there was a conflict between Pandit Jawaharlal Nehru and uh, Dr. Rajendra Prasad and the conflict was about the role of the president of India whether the president had some power in his regard because there is article 74 and article 75 clause 1 where the an amendment was done where obviously we have an inclusion of the term shall and we know what does it mean it means that uh, you know uh, in general terms the president shall always be advised by the council of ministers he can't do anything at his own discretion there may be some exceptions, but actually there are no exceptions with the constitution of India 1950 elsewhere. Why? Because, you know, the moral aspect of you know, the council of ministers is very important. Okay, uh, let's understand constitutional morality in one more aspect. Uh, we say constitutional morality is an evolution, but it's, it's an evolution which is obviously based on some origins of a constitution. One of the very interesting origins is collective responsibility. Why do we have a concept of sailing together and 
thinking together <laughs> because we know that the government our government bill may make a mistake so why do we consider that there should be no confidence of the government uh, if uh, our government bill is not passed as per the indian constitution and that the government was fall it's because of the fact that uh, uh, we have a different kind of sovereignty okay and when we have power morality is one of the basic tools to instrument power but there have been countless cases where the government of india you know under different regimes and also in the us and another other democracies as such as russia i'll come to russia as soon as possible have misused this power of constitutional morality it's a kind of discretionary role but yet very important because it has an instrumental figurine to maintain for the people and for the institutions that govern this whole society the whole human society at least for the states not for an international forum at least for now because i'm not getting to international law uh, but uh, constitutional morality has become a problematic concept because of the fact that when we recognize human rights we extend a lot and somehow it becomes a dilemma it somehow comes can becomes a sublimation of the rights that we attain as individuals whether citizens or not citizens that's a different legal question but if, let us consider in the simple aspect if we, even if we are citizens safeguarded you know who, who whose uh, rights are safeguarded by the state so a very simple concept how does it work for a welfare state is constitution morality good so you know that's a big problem so to deeply understand let's get to the next concept as fast as possible uh, the next one is democratic backsliding uh, you know about venezuela a you know a group of people you know who are in the national assembly you know the parliamentary organ of the state uh, you know are have been elected and recently new elections have been announced uh, the dictator i should say in general of venezuela the leader of venezuela the sovereign of venezuela nicolas maduro is being uh, accused of violating the human rights of the people i should say in general the human rights obligations towards the people same like king jong un of the dprk and uh, you know bashar al assad of syrian arab republic sar so uh, donald trump theresa may emmanuel macron and the other eu states the, all these the, the, all these nations the prime of ac states in the west have actually contemplated against them they have said that they would take action as soon as possible if elections are not declared maduro has said that he, he will declare he has declared but uh, if we understand democratic backsliding we will understand how actually maduro went up to this so maduro went because of the fact that democratic backsliding ha- happened now democratic backsliding also happens during trump and i'll tell you how uh you know uh, when fake news or propaganda is you know being used and capitalism and authoritarianism do combine or merge so how does it occur it occurs in a way that those basic institutions in a constitutional life and i term in an, in an academic sense constitutional life when these institutions exist such as media um uh, you know government agencies education educational institutions when such basic institutions that are related to the basic needs of the people attribute towards propaganda or fire hosing if you read rand corporation's report on vladimir putin you will understand why fake news or propaganda leads to democratic backsliding and that exactly what is happening in europe right now and in russia russia has been happening for a longer period of time because after boris yeltsin in 1998 vladimir putin just rocked it up i should say because uh, he uh, became the prime minister plus president you know by time to time in time to time of russia or russian federation and he actually misused the constitution destroyed the opposition misused the judiciary and represented himself as a powerful leader in the international community being very authoritarian okay meanwhile in china we don't have a democracy but still the constitution of the communist party of china is not much of value because um, you know the leaders are bribed and they are not working according to the constitution even if there is no democracy so uh, we are not going to understand constitutionalism right now because constitutionalism is the predominant responsibility i should say to exist it's a responsibility to exist and uh, if you are not feeding up the responsibility and not understanding the deep roots of responsibility rather than just making it materially showy 
and fake, democratic backsliding is very fast to occur. And one of the best examples is about Donald Tusk. Donald Tusk was a Polish prime minister. Okay, he was a liberal. He's a liberal. He his policies are known for his work in Poland. Poland, you know, was a you know a country during the Second World War, which was badly affected. Millions of people died due to Hitler. And after that, Poland, you know, became one of the most encouraging members of the European Union. following the principles of rule of law following human right obligations and maintaining a constitutional peace out there well poland is one of the most interesting democracies in the european union because unlike britain and france they have emerged very well but when donald tusk was invited and elected as the president of the european council the right wing parties actually led to democratic backsliding where they dismantled the judiciary you know stood awoke against the opposition and just tried to destroy the self determination of the people and then the article 6 was tried to be invoked but all the eu 27 states did not accept to it because of one person um from hungary um and because of that because of because of no representation from hungary because of a concurrent vote by hungary a negative vote by hungary um article 6 was not implemented by the european commission so democratic backsliding is a big issue and viktor orban was the prime minister of hungary at the time and he is so viktor orban is also one of the examples so democratic backsliding is an issue okay you know what happens is it's just not the rise of fascism it's about the fact it's a political and legal concept because where democracies implement rule of law one they implement rule of law but while implementing rule of law they destroy political capability they actually slightly actually and slightly just destroy political neutrality and liberty and even if some liberties are not attributed to politics or political realm such as economic rights or cyber rights or you know other kinds of different rights which don't have a political stand up or background they try to connote it with politics they try to do it and that's a big issue that happens with governments like this trump has done it he's doing constantly um europe has been facing this belgium romania France uh, it has to unless Emmanuel Macron loses the next election or you no know, what happens but yes the UK is facing much you know it's a tipsy topsy journalism you know, populism out there so uh, democratic backsliding is a concept which is emerging these days okay now the third one i'm going to refer as fast as possible uh, the next one which i'm talking going to talk about is inverted totalitarianism i will uh, talk about george w bush a little and then barack obama george w bush was a man uh who actually uh was concerned with um providing a safe america to be more responsible uh, often he was condemned for his policies but yes he has done something good so and then his son also came george h w bush and then barack obama be in between we had different presidents bill clinton and others but yes i'm going to talk about the bush right now h w bush sorry So George W Bush during his time when the Iraq war happened when the US administration had done different marvels and also different failures in the international community um uh, an estimation was done by research which found out that there's something called inverted totalitarianism so this is not Orwell's totalitarianism of 1984 why because it is a question about understanding how these modalities just go on and it's about lacking of you know political capability to do something uh i must say in a way that this totalitarianism is about less about populism but more about law means rule of law is uh, i guess blind in this because when rule of law is blind as a body if you understand rule of law then it will not be able to discern where political capability exists because uh, rule of law does not say that politics is very dynamic rule of law has a semantic aspect to it rule of law as a concept renders the scientific method and ontology 
of political capability okay so the scientific method in ontology is actually very interesting one of the interesting concepts i should refer is universal adult franchise universal adult franchise in general okay this concept you find in article 326 of the indian constitution so universal adult franchise and also article 325 so uh, of the same indian constitution okay so, so it's about uh, you know a law enabling political capability and making it scientifically neutral and not like communal electorate which obviously is very archaic if you understand it it may render some kind of rule of law but yes if we just you know don't render secularism in that aspect but communal electorate is very anarchic because you know uh, if we understand at least to political issues obviously and social issues you know an understandability but also violates rule of law because uh, it has nothing to do with it in the end it, it if we understand very technically it's it, it's scientific method and ontology is what i should say in simple terms according to my view uh, rather pessimistic and counterproductive it it does not leave any future to what technical neutrality should it resemble okay uh, but yes uh, uh, no, a universal adult franchise and you know neutrality in electorate is somehow a, a concept and rule of law which is very interesting very interesting electoral laws are like that so uh, you know um, uh, inverted totalitarianism is, is about killing that capability okay somehow corruption laws uh, you know laws related to intelligence and action also issues related to sedition national security these also cause inverted totalitarianism because there is no general grand norm and even if we have grand norms to solve something called harmony harmony must be resolved it actually fails to happen and that's a big question that we face why do we face is because of the fact that the understandability of law these days has become restrictive and it's because of the academia i don't condemn the academia all the time but yes few of them also because of the practitioners also because of the judges not all but see a sense of few also because of uh, the institutions that have been working on so how they represent sovereignty how they represent federalism how they represent you know how they should interact with institutions all of this affects constitutional morality all of this may lead to inverted totalitarianism means it may seem democratic to have a voting machine and vote somewhere it may seem democratic to you know lead to democratization of technology and everything that you have but how come the technology is leading rule of law in that bigger scenario that provides political capability and safeguarding of political you know i should say capsules of life political life doesn't mean political parties doesn't mean political organizations doesn't mean political ideologies the rule the concept of rule of law has nothing to do with uh, uh, ideologies it regards the existence of ideologies but it doesn't say that ideologies are important for anything in simple terms it does not have any business to do with ideologies uh, recently recently if you remember the case is regarding reservation you will understand that there was one judgment i think either indrasani case or somewhere else where the supreme court said that the very discrimination on the basis of class has actually nothing to do with marxian thought it has nothing to do with marxian thought also if we understand the amendment to the constitution the preamble amendment an addition of the term secular out there okay secular socialist you know various political issues arise people question okay uh, this term uh, socialist is about marxism communism in india communists like cpi cpim and other parties have been indulgent over it please, please understand this this is not 
these two terms are very beautiful concepts. Socialism is a concept of Pandit Jawaharlal Nehru and also the Indian National Congress, but also the concept of the government of India and these initial times. In fact, India is a socialist economy. It has capitalism to exist, uh, but which we, 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 can, we cannot ignore in a welfare state. It has to, because, but yes, its ideological perspective has been this. So yes, the rule of law, the rule of law may support socialism, but in the business of socialism, the rule of law may not have a lot to do with, because uh, that's not how the rule of law works. Okay, uh, if any ideology exists, if anything like that, a subjective thing exists, the rule of law just channelizes it in a way that it exists. But if it's violating rule of law, then it has to be protested by rule of law. So that the rule of law itself maintain its own space. You know, there should be something called a spacious aspect of a political life. A constitution always lives a political life and that's a big thing. And the law is a society. So, uh, these three concepts I've been talking about, so constitutional morality is a big issue and now we come to understanding how constitutional morality is a flaw because morality in its own sense regards the semblance of all ideologies and subjective things. In short, morality also leads to choice based jurisprudence sometimes that happens. Shabrimala or you know any other case if you remember even Oberfeld versus Hodges in the US or any other judgment I'm not going to judgments because that would be inappropriate for the lecture uh, we have to understand jurisprudence so let's not get into judgments all the time but understand the very aspect of jurisprudence here but constitutional morality fails when it recognizes human rights it recognizes it and is it as a lineation as a restrictive approach, as a, as, a, as a progression where reaction renders something, where we understand these things, but we do not actually have a solution, we just lead to compromises. And uh, I tell you what, uh, in data protection law, which is actually a new area of constitutional law, because data protection is a very basic thing of life. Understand this, it is about your own life, your cyber space. Okay? Uh, if you go to taxation matters, that is uh, also related to constitutional law. If you go to economic matters, that is related to constitutional law because it is about your social life. Taxation is about your social life and also your relation with the state, your responsibility to the state and also to, this, uh, to the nation for its economic driving and everything, for its national income. If you go to politics and religion, there is a whole uh, welfare space of it as well and that is why we have rights related to subjectivity such as sexual minority rights or you know Bosco, you know uh, rights related to women and children, rights related to uh, political freedoms, okay. We have these rights, but we have different spaces that exist. So, cyberspace is a new space which has emerged in data protection as data protection law in international law as well as constitutional regimes. So, if we go to GDPR, we will understand how GDPR has acted to a successful, to be a successful um, regulation with some flaws uh, that GDPR has impacted millions and uh, its all obligations become rendering in that perspective to lead to a better use of data because data is the new oil. So, constitutional morality is a flaw. Because if constitutional morality renders artificial resemblance and does not lead to a natural or real semblance, if it is not evolutionary, if it is not cultivable, if it is just adherence and nothing else, then it is the defeat of positive law when has it emerged a lot and matured with time by emerging with a concept called constitution. Democracies, because of that, may fail and may collapse, and that's a big issue right now in India as well. But uh, uh, in India, we don't have, a, a, you know, um, I should say, a democratic backsliding. At least, we have a constitutional redemption, and somehow an inverted totalitarianism. But we don't have a democratic backsliding. But yes, uh, if we understand these aspects of jurisprudential 
roles of a constitution we can uh, we can uh, really really deal with this and we can lead a solution to it because constitutional ethics is a more practical approach it's a science it's a pure scientific approach where you work on constitutionality you work on different aspects of human rights you make human rights obligations just more than obligations and you make it a harmony of a society and that's how laws are made if if they are do that be done so just out of those civil right traditionalism i suggest and and we can hope for this that one day we can have one of the best democracies in the world as india and also in other democracies also we can lead to better solutions and we can eradicate fake news and other subjective constraints that exist if we just don't generalize morality as a black hole so that's the end of the podcast lecture from my side uh, thank you so much um it has certainly been a great time and for any comments messages or suggestions i would love to address therefore you can mail me at abhivardhan@internationalism.co.in or global@internationalism.co.in you can find my name on the various social media portals such as linkedin twitter facebook and others you can contact me there and we can you know share some educative and learning based thoughts out there on social media so thank you so much for this thank you so much and take care hello everyone this is swati singh parmar and uh, today i am here with the new series on jurisprudence lectures and this is the first lecture of the series so it has to be on introduction to jurisprudence uh, jurisprudence is the backbone of law one of the most important subjects of law we domestic law or international law the constitution of country is based upon the principles of jurisprudence international law is based upon the understanding of jurisprudence so one who has a good understanding of the principles of jurisprudence the underlying concepts of law he would definitely have in turn a good understanding of either the, the domestic law or the international laws so in the introduction to jurisprudence we will discuss about the earliest conceptions of natural law which are essentially greek and roman to begin with it is important to understand the greek and roman conceptions because through that we would know that what portions of today's law we owe to natural law modern conceptions of law and justice are linked with the ancient greek and roman scholars in two terms one content and the other one approach for instance uh, modern notions of equality equal application of laws human rights sovereignty natural justice these all are incomplete without an understanding of natural law and these notions all of them are in one way or the other inherent in all the legal systems of the world so we do find reflection of these notions in the domestic legal systems also some countries may have it in limited sense some have it in a wide sense but it is one or the other form there in almost all the legal systems so and and more importantly these notions for instance equality or equal application of laws is actually also the litmus litmus test for determining the legitimacy of every law natural law if we see it is universal ubiquitous and applicable to everyone regardless of caste creed gender geography and other such parameters an understanding of the evolution of natural law is necessary to study the growth of law as it exists today across civilizations and culture Roman and Greek civilizations have been unique because philosophies and political ideals is inherent is is seen to be inherent in their literary works so we do have 
plays, drama, novels in which um, the characters or the dialogues or the context is interwoven into ideas of divinity, nature, universe, God, justice, through which everything actually in a sense reflects the earliest ideas about natural law, earliest understandings of human civilization about natural law. Uh, let us begin with the conceptions of natural law among Greeks. Greeks were the earliest to have a conception of natural law principles. They were the first one to distinguish law from blind faith and mysticism. Uh, they were also the first one to give law a definite shape. I, I do not know whether they could give a definite shape or not. But yes, they were the first one to attempt uh, to give it a definite shape. Uh, they were the ones that told some universal principles exist. And idea of universal principles is uniform across the globe. It is same for all, for everyone. And this idea was linked with philosophical pursuits concerning human society, social norms, um, regulations, customs and moral values. Uh, this is best described by William Friedman as a search for absolute values. Absolute values is basically finding perfection in laws and finding perfection in laws actually um, points towards the laying of the foundations of natural law. Major contributions of Greek era, uh, if we um, consider, then first one to come to our mind will be sophists. Uh, sophists were there around 5th century BC. They came up with the nascent ideas of law. They were considered to be a brilliant group of philosophers who had different perspectives of viewing, viewing law, society, polity uh, from different from their, their, their ancestors. And the era to which the sophists, this group belonged, that had different social circumstances. There were frequent changes in the law laws in the city-states and these frequent changes triggered the sophists to conceive of a body of law that needs a, um, a distinct sight. Uh, for instance, how, how law should be approached, what should be the content of law, how law should be applied. So these questions, in order to answer these questions, they thought that there is to be, uh, there has to be a body of principles upon which these uh, uh, questions could be answered. During this period, this was the period during which Greek scholars shifted from traditional values. Before this, people used to link laws with mysticism, dogmas, religion, blind faith and other such abstract entities. They for the first time started inquiring the functions of law in a society which was never done before. Now we would come to the salient features of Sophism. For them, law was not a natural creation. It did not come by itself. Law, um, as a, uh, it, was, it was seen as a purely human intervention, which was born out of necessity. And this necessity, philosophers varied themselves on what the necessities or the needs were of the society for law being born. And the laws, they also conceived them to be alterable at will, human will. They, in a way, detached law from metaphysics. They disbelieved that law has some divine source. It actually uh, came as per them because of the needs or necessity of human civilizations or the society. Natural law is different from and opposed to written law. Of this they were very clear. So natural law was prevalent to be divine or superior to every other law that human societies had. 
so they they saw law as of two varieties one was natural law the basic principles and uh, the other entity was written law so they in a way distinguished law uh, into two heads natural law and written law uh, the earliest sophist uh, was sophocles he was a great jurist one of his own kinds he laid the foundation of sophist uh, sophist uh, philosophy he was a leading sophist philosopher and he wrote a classical play tragic play antigone in 441 bc and he talked great deal about natural law he said that natural law is wise but written law is arbitrary natural law was considered to be supreme uh, without um, and uh, written law was considered to be a creature of mankind something which was quite inferior to natural law uh, in the classic play antigone written by sophocles um, there is a, a great plot set by so- sophocles and uh, he talks about antigone who was uh, one of the daughters of oedipus and oedipus was a, a tragic figure who had mistakenly uh, killed his father and that is why he was cursed by the gods and subsequently oedipus married his mother now uh, to oedipus after after oedipus died a civil war broke and there was a battle and two of his sons two of sons of oedipus fought against um, each other and uh, in which uh, oedipus's uh, brother creon uh, who was uncle of antigone was an uh, emerged as an uh, undisputed master of the city um, the the two sons who were fighting against each other they they ultimately fought battle and they killed each other and uh, creon who was now the undisputed king of the city he uh, said that the brother who was fighting against him his right of honorable burial was refused not only this it was also announced throughout the city that whosoever attempts to bury the uh, dead brother uh, a death penalty shall be imposed upon him now antigone uh, sees one of his brothers who was buried in full honor of the state while other one was left unburied unwept and this um invokes antigone's uh, conscience and she decides to bury him defying the orders of the king creon now uh, all the characters of the play of this great tragic play they talk to antigone she talks to king creon and through the dialogues uh, sophocles has beautifully bra- brought out uh, that brought out the juxtaposes that antigone faces um the two sets of obligation and laws which are contradictory and conflictory in nature so on one hand she feels bound by the laws of the heaven to bury her brother while on the other she is bound by the laws of the state not to bury him because it was the order of the king not to bury anyone who fought against his army so these are uh, were two sets of obligations and laws um, due to which antigone found herself in moral dilemma and um, on one hand is uh, the natural law in a sense if we see then the the divine law or the laws of god and on the other hand is the laws of the ruler or laws of the state or the words of the king so it's the whole play is 
revolving around the conflict, the ethical and moral dilemmas that Antigone faces for uh, burial of her brother. And through this play, uh, the earliest conceptions of natural law were laid down. This is a much celebrated play written by Sophocles. Now, second most important thinker uh, of Sophism is Heraclitus. He was the one who for the first time considered the relationship between nature and the law. So he said that nature is not only an entity, but it is a rhythm of events. So there is a superior entity or supreme body of permanent uniform rules and which creates several events. So there is a pattern which is created by the nature and the same is reflected sometimes in law. So the prominence of nature of law started with the thinking of Heraclitus. He also acknowledged the ambiguous nature of law and this ambiguous nature of law started gaining importance for the first time after Heraclitus. The third most important sophist thinker would undoubtedly be Callicles, who advocated about the right of the strong. According to him, it was natural for humans to be unequal because they were born unequal and they were bestowed inequality by the nature itself. It was equality which was artificial as per him because equality was an entity created by the humans because nature bestows inequality and difference. So uniqueness in every human being which is inequality is given by the nature and humans always crave for equality which actually is an artificial entity. So nature has never bestowed equality on mankind as per calculus. People are entitled to different rights and liabilities because they are unequal and all individuals are not equal in their capacities as per calculus. So he in a way also advocated about uh, might is right which I already discussed. So he also said that law existed for the betterment of the strong only. So it is the strong which will be benefited by law and the strong are the they are because everyone is not strong so of course the strong will uh, succeed the weaker people now there is one important sophist jurist who's uh, Thrasymachus he said that law is a weapon of the strong to further their objectives his theory was uh, much influenced by Calicles. Like Calicles, he advocated about might is right. He said that right of the strong is justified as it is natural state of things. And it is a weapon to further their objectives. After Trasimachus, there is one very classical thinker. A great sophist, my personal favorite, Plato. He was a disciple of Socrates, whose conception of law was opposed to what Thrasymachus or Callicles taught. These philosophers, Socrates thought, had a perverted version of what law is. So their basis, uh, that is nature, the basis of law was maybe okay, but their idea of right of the strong or might is right was erroneous or a perverted version of law as per Socrates. Plato believed that there is innate inequality among human beings because human beings are not equal in spirit and capacities. So everyone has different physical, mental, psychological or rational capabilities and on the basis of this inherent inequality in humans, Plato conceived of a class system. His ideal, his uh, philosophy is known as uh, idealist philosophy and he gave 
a fourfold division of the society he justified class system on the basis of individual capacities so the basic feature of his uh, thinking would be individual capacity and class system the fourfold division that he talked in his theory were um, first the gold second silver third copper fourth iron so gold were the nobles the superior intellectual uh, humans with good physical capabilities also those whose pursuits were intellectual uh, silver also had intellectual pursuits but somewhat um, less lesser at a lesser pedestrian than the gold now gold and silver since they were superior in intellectual capacity and physical cap- capabilities they were supposed to lead a life of renunciation devoted to the cause of the state and for the protection of copper and iron they were not allowed to have families relations in the way people of copper and iron categories were allowed third category copper had maximum number of people and iron were the one uh, who had maximum of strength and copper and iron were entitled to pursue normal life of marriage relations and other social norms his uh, plato's class society and class system has uh, various criticism also but um, in in his earliest uh, conception it the class system was devised because of the differences that we all have amongst ourselves and because of division of labor for the betterment of society now very important contribution in the earliest conceptions of natural law is of aristotle he contributed significantly his approach was classified by deep understanding of human nature so idealistic nature was there in plato's work and aristotle's work took it uh, away away forward aristotle conceived of a system of law or justice which should be there with the spirit of humanity which the capacity that humanity holds he agrees about plato's con- conception of justice but he adds that it demands ultimate nobility and average human beings are not capable of it uh, man is a rational animal and the only thing that distinguishes man from other animals is rationality this was one of the basic um, features of his theory aristotle also said that man is the best animal when controlled by law segregation makes him the worst creature so for him legal system is the um, oriented form and it is oriented as per the capacity of individuals um, he also said that law must be treated as supreme and um, not individual so it is the law which is supreme not the individuals because no human being is above uh, the pollution of vices that come with untrampled and un- unchecked uncontrolled power and pride natural justice as a body of those principles uh, which could not be altered was seen by aristotle and uh, he also said that natural law had the same validity everywhere in every society now uh, as per aristotle the legitimacy of the principles of natural justice did not depend on their acceptance or non acceptance by any segment of society or individual this is a very important thing that he said and um, i think that is quite true in today's society also that if a thing is legitimate it remains to be legitimate whether it is accepted by the uh, judiciary whether it is accepted by the parliament whether it finds place in black letters of law or not but it remains um, legitimate um, in contrast to this aristotle also evolved the conception of conventional justice which was capable of variations and alterations Uh, depending upon the necessities and demands of the society 
as one can see uh, through um, throughout these theories aristotle has brought a significant change to the roman philosophy and the change would be one of from idealism to realism from plato to aristotle then it was also a change in philosophy from abstractism to concreteness and also it can be said that it was radical arguments to a state of balance of law and justice with this we have seen the contributions of the greek um sophists um to natural law and i hope you found this interesting it was a story like built upon from one jurist to another hope you find this audio helpful thank you so much